Hello and welcome to another episode of This is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centered design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. But today, this podcast was recorded in Melbourne. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast was recorded in the Melbourne CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Boonarong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Earlier last year, I was speaking at UX Australia and saw a fantastic talk by our guest today, Rachel Mullins. I've added a link to that presentation in the show notes so you can also enjoy it. Over the course of the last year or so, I've heard whispers in the UX community of a new role emerge called a UX writer and I was instantly drawn to it as I've identified the issues many times in my career of the solutions that a role like this can address. Rachel also published a really great article on Medium that I'll also add to the show notes and we caught up face to face and had a good chat about how Rachel got into the industry, what she does, the principles of good UX writing and what tools she uses and much, much more. I've babbled on too much, so let's jump straight in. Rachel Mullins, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm recording from Melbourne and we're sitting face to face in the CBD and I caught up with you a little bit in uh, UX Australia this year where you were speaking about bringing out your inner UX writer. Yes. But before we get to that, Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into design. Yeah, sure. So I worked as a technical writer for nine years. And at the start of that time, we were a team of writers basically documenting how to use the software at a big accounting software company. We didn't have much interaction with the UX team or the product interface at all. But over the course of that nine years, we kind of more and more saw ourselves working directly in the interface. So coming up with the wording on the UI. And it kind of made total sense to us that you would get the people who were experts in writing to write the interface. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a long journey. But eventually I found myself in this position of working closely with UXs and designers to um, come up with the words in the interface. And that's kind of where I am today. So how would you describe your, your skills as a practitioner? Like, where do you sit within the design process? Or where do you prefer to sit in the design process? Yeah, so I think the best place for a writer to sit is directly in the design team. So that's working closely with the UX designer, the visual designer, the BA, to think about the content from the very beginning of the design process rather than being brought in at the end. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the utopia and it doesn't always happen. I'm sure. But, um, Retrospectively, looking back in those nine years where you're in that, that other job, how does it compare? We were very much a siloed team of writers who at the beginning didn't have a lot of interaction with the design team. Today, the job I'm in right now at Seamless, uh, I'm embedded in the design team and it just makes it so much easier when you think about content from the very beginning and work closely with the others coming up with the UI. So what would you say to organisations that are currently using technical writing and they're saying, ah, it's kind of the same as UX writing? What would you say yeah, to those organisations? That's, that's a good question. And you also get the question of, isn't UX writing just copywriting? Yeah. So you're right that there's a lot of overlap between all those types of writing, but I guess the key thing to think about is what the purpose is of what you're writing. So... For a copywriter, it's often more about writing to persuade or to sell something. And with UX writing, we're more about writing to educate or to guide users through 
a particular experience. Do you think you can do both? Do you think copywriters yeah, for can sure. do UX, UX And writing? I think technical writers, that's a very common path into UX writing is people who begin as technical writers because they already have that user focus and instead of documenting how to use something, they're now basically being part of the experience itself and writing the words on the interface. Yeah. So how, how does technical writing and UX writing differ? Well, traditionally, technical writing is more about how to use something and it, it traditionally sits outside the interface. So it might be a help centre, a how-to video or written topic. Yeah. And so more and more we're seeing that kind of merging of, of that instructional information and the interface itself. Yeah. So... Rachel, um, I caught some of your talk at UX Australia this year in Sydney, but maybe tell the listener what you understand UX writing to be. How would you describe it? For me, it's all about the art of writing the words in the interface. So the words you encounter during your experience with a product, basically the content in the customer experience. Uh, So that can include anything from the tiny bits of text in buttons or field labels to titles and links and calls to action, empty states, placeholders, emails that get triggered by the product. Basically, yeah, all the words that are part of the experience. So if you were a service designer and you're working as part of a a larger ecosystem, would UX writing sit across the entire ecosystem or are you saying it just sits within the interface? Yeah, that's a good question because it's primarily the interface, but then there are those things like emails that are outside it that a good UX writer will be the person that connects those dots to say, oh, we need to make sure we've got a consistent tone of voice and we're using consistent wording across all those touch points. So whether that's in the interface or email content or support writing, it's all consistent. So wayfinding, you would, you'd imagine it could be part of it, but probably in your experience, it tends to be baked in the, in the digital world a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I mean, you can have UX writing in the physical world if you think of something like a lift with buttons and text to tell you what to do in an emergency. Okay, so it does sit outside of the, the digital realm. Yeah, for I, sure. I guess. Yeah, obviously my experience is more the digital side, but you can have words on the interface, whatever the interface is. Yeah, true. Yeah. The interaction. Yeah. So one of the, the articles that I know you've written and it's had, I don't know how many thousand people on Medium applaud it. I'm definitely one of them. I think I gave you the whole 50. Woo. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was a big whoop. I actually whooped when I applauded. Um, so tell us a little bit about that article and where it came about and what drove you to write the article. I presented a short talk at UX Australia on bringing out your inner UX writer. So primarily for people working in UX that don't necessarily have that writing background, Mm -hmm. some tips to help them improve the words in their interfaces. So then I developed that into a Medium article yeah, and just outlined my principles for great UX writing. So let's talk about these principles because it's definitely something I know that the listeners are going to have a lot of uh, interest in, a lot of questions probably as well. Yeah, sure. So my number one principle to keep in mind would be to make every word earn its place. So that involves editing ruthlessly. So you're only including the words that you really, really need. And often that means starting with nothing and just adding Building it from there. Building it from there, exactly, rather than starting with this whole heap of text and cutting it down. Just start with nothing and add only what you need. 
I know in, in my experience, when I was working um, on a recent project, I found it easier to work with a lot of text and whittle it down that way. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that approach for UX writing? Is it once I've got to the point of comprehension and I've tested it and I, then I start subtracting until I find the balance? I think that can definitely work. But often for me, what works even better is starting with nothing and then you're just adding the elements that you need Yeah. until you get to that point of comprehension. But yeah. both methods can definitely work. You could yeah. end up having a paragraph and a button then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're taking my approach, I guess. Possibly, yes. Yeah. All right, so every word uh, has to earn its place. Mm, and part of that is also making sure you use short words instead of long words where so give possible. Us some, give us some examples there. So the one I used in my talk was instead of uh, when you're saying sorry for something. <laughs> yeah, which is very common. A lot <laughs> yeah. of UX yeah. people have this. Like, Do you say like, oops? Yeah. So much of what I do is writing error messages, but uh, that's another story. Yeah. Um, so instead of saying, we apologize for the inconvenience or something like that, just yeah. say, we're sorry. We're sorry. So, yeah. Just take the shortest, sharpest approach to saying what you're trying to say. Nice. Yeah. I guess you make it sound so easy. <laughs> the obvious is always not obvious initially. <laughs> so what else can people consider when they're I'd also say aim for high information density. Ooh, so This sounds very, very compact. <laughs> it's a fancy way of saying just make sure the words you're using are actually saying something. Get rid of the fluff. How do you do this? Like For you, it's probably very easy. But I know a lot of my UX friends are like, oh, I just don't touch the words. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say to them? How do they get good at this? That's, that's a bigger question. So I think you can learn a lot from talking to your users, testing your words. That's something I would always recommend, that you test your content just as you would your design. How do you do that? Like, How, how would you recommend, if Rachel Mullins was to design the process, that to testing well, those words, what would you well, advise? Well, when you think about it, unless your interface has no words on it, you're usually testing the content when you do any sort of testing. True. So it's just a matter of listening to what users are telling you. And if they mention something about the language that you've used or that they can't understand something... It might be the wording that's getting in the way. So it's kind of already built into existing processes of testing design. Um, there are other methods of testing purely the words. So in terms of testing the level of readability of what you're writing, there are great tools out there. One of them that I use quite often is called Hemingway App, Okay. where you just dump in some text and it will tell you what reading level the text is at, okay. with the idea being that you want as low a reading level as possible. How does it generate that uh, reading oh, level? Oh, magic. Know? Magic. Yeah. There's yeah. some magic there's stuff a, There's a magic on. algorithm behind it. And it will also tell you if you're using too many <laughs> passive constructions and all that oh, okay. geeky grammar stuff that we probably don't want to get into right uh, now. Have you used Grammarly? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's also good. What are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. As really good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people who swear by it, yeah. who won't write an email without it. So. <laughs> I might be one, I might not yeah. be one, I'm not saying I am. And another tool that is a really, really simple one is Google Trends. Oh, okay. Yeah, where you just paste in two or three or four variants of a word and it will show you the use of those words over time and by region. So you can find out if a word you're thinking of is only used in the UK or if it was popular Five years ago, but now no one uses it. So, course, yeah, that's yeah. a really cool free tool. That totally makes sense when you think yeah. about it. Because certain words I know down in Melbourne make 
because this is being the hip capital of the world. Exactly. Um, is it thongs or is it flip-flops? Yeah, or jandals if you're in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a really good point. So I'll drop some of those links into the show notes. Yep. So what's the next principle that you're, you're working towards? Yeah, so the next principle is make it scannable. Right. So... I like this because yeah. this is this is a word that I'm really I use quite a lot in any of my work. Make sure it's scannable. So yeah. what, what does it mean for you? Well, we know that users read online differently to how they read in print. So tell the users who are, who aren't really sure. There's, there's <laughs> business people listening to this as well. They're like, "What do you mean? I, you read one way, left, right?" Yeah. So there's tons of research. Uh, you can look into Nielsen Norman Group for more on it about how users online will scan the text rather than read every word. Right. And there's the F-shaped reading pattern, which describes how their eyes move across or down the page. How does that change the, like, the way people scan? How does that change the comprehension levels? Yeah, so it just means you need to make it really obvious where certain text is on the page. So make it really easy for them to be able to scan quickly and find what they need. So you might add subheadings so they can easily just you know, track their eye down the page until they get to the right subheading. Or you might use more bold and italic. You might use bulleted lists. You might use shorter paragraphs. There are all sorts of approaches. I know some visual designers are probably like throwing their eyes up to heaven and going, <laughs> italics! Yeah, okay. Bold! Maybe scratch those ones. No, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely. Like it's, you know, you're, you're here to give your feedback. So once you've got your scannability down... What would you say the role of iconography is in supporting the scannability? Yeah, good question. I know there's been a number of studies about how it's often hard to comprehend icons when they're used alone Mm -hmm. as compared to if they're used in conjunction with text. So when we use icons, uh, we try to incorporate text as well. So users are never just relying on the icon itself. So... Let's try and speak a little bit more about your involvement with managing the content. Because I know a lot of organizations, when they're designing, they can still design in pages as opposed to designing in modules or within a design system. But how do you keep control of, I don't want to use the vernacular as a word, but like, how do you manage that? Yeah, we're still figuring that out, to be honest. Yeah. At the moment, it's quite ad hoc. But we do... What do you use? What tools do you use? Well, at the moment, I try to use the same tools that the designers use as much as possible. So directly editing the wireframes, but that's not always how it ends up being. So sometimes it's just working directly with developers to come up with the wording for an error message. And that could take any form. It could be a hip chat conversation or an email to them or, or it's on a wiki page somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, we're still trying to find the best approach to holding all that content so if somewhere. You, if you had any ideas, like simple methods for people who are currently starting out in this world, what could they use? Well, hmm. What's the simplest form of management? I think the simplest form is probably something like an Excel doc. Yeah, where or, or Google Doc even. Google Doc, yes. Yeah. Uh, where you've Just got- kill off Microsoft. <laughs> Where, where you've got all the content strings in one place. So what does that mean when you say strings? Yeah, so that's just another word for UX writing, chunks of UX copy. There are so many different terms that yeah, people use for it. Chunk of text. Product copy, UI strings, micro copy. It's all kind of the same thing. So well, what would you say to organizations that um, if they've tested something 
and say a word fails on the website, does that mean that you just never use that word again? I mean, context is king, so not necessarily, but like A-B testing is a great way to figure out if the word you're using is right. But yeah, if you're consistently finding that users don't understand the word, I'd suggest that it's probably time to throw it out. Sunset, or yeah. put it to bed, give it a good tuck in. Yeah. <laughs> and one another test that has really been really eye-opening for me is to get somebody I work with who's not a native English speaker to review the UI text because so often what they comprehend is different to what a native English speaker will comprehend. Yeah. So it's a really quick way of figuring out if you're using vernacular that the rest of the world isn't going to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just touching on that and building on it a little bit more, what role would you say UX writing plays with accessibility within the interface or within the system? I think it goes back to the principles of plain language. So making sure that what you're writing is accessible to all users whether their native language is English or not. That's making sure you've got alt text embedded. Uh, embedded. Is that something that UX writing will actually go and QA and, and check to make sure that the accessibility is there? That could come from anyone. Yeah. Our developers are very accessibility focused. Our QAs also. So it's kind of a team effort in terms of accessibility. It kind of goes yeah. back to that four-legged chair, except you're introducing now the development stream. Yeah. I guess they, they would add their, their extra kind of knowledge yeah. to that stream. So one of the other points I remember hearing you speak about was give it the time it deserves. Yeah. What did you mean by that? That means considering content early rather than leaving it to the last minute. It also means using real content in prototypes. Yeah. Which is controversial for some. It's controversial for some, definitely. But it means you're thinking about the actual content that goes in the interface as soon as possible because that's going to influence the design. So that's the content stream really working in parallel with any iterations. So it's much earlier in the process. And I know a lot of, a lot of teams may struggle with that because they may see it as being slowing down the process. Yeah, but I think... I often find that it speeds things up in the long term because you're not getting to the end of the process and then realising, oh, that word doesn't fit in that button or yeah. something like that. Yeah, true. So, That's a really good point. Yeah. It's also about allowing enough time to revise because you What do you mean by that? Well, you don't often come up with the best version of the wording at the very beginning. Yeah. So it's just having the time in your process to As iterate well, to and, and iterate. End, and yeah. Exactly. Just like you would the design. Yeah, which and, is a really good point. Yeah, and it's also about testing the content. Yeah, so giving the UX writing more time, but it also gives yeah. us more time to collaborate as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. some of the uh, worst content outcomes I've, I've experienced is when the writer is brought in at the very end and asked, oh, can you just add some words to the design? And it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's always a nightmare. So what do you say to people who are, I know there's people listening and they kind of say, oh, well, the marketing team write our content and they're writing the emails and they're, they're writing um, and then the product managers writing some of the content and it's kind of hodgepodge. Mm. What would you say to them as, a, as selling in UX writing? Well, firstly, I'd suggest that it's a good idea to have one person owning all of those client touch points in terms of the content because then you're going to improve your consistency you're going to be able to introduce your company's tone of voice across all of them. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to get a better outcome when you've got someone who 
knows where all that content is and can make sure that you're giving the same message across all of them. Yeah. And I'd also say that it, when you've got all those different people like marketing, doing your UX writing, you just have to be careful that you know what your goal is with what you're writing. And yeah. you, you've got the best person for the job. So yeah. marketers often come from the position of writing to persuade. And on with UX writing, you you can have some of that, but often it's more about writing to guide a user through an experience or educate them. Yeah. Have you any experience with working at marketing departments? Yep. Writing content? Are you able to talk a, bit, a little bit we'll more about We'll just leave that, that there. Okay. <laughs> it can be tricky. Yeah, it can be tricky. Yeah. Any um, advice on navigating around that, that trickiness? I know there's people out there that are, they would love to get a UX writing person in, um, but they're like, oh, it's just another UXer. We've already got one UXer. What advice could you give them to be able to go to their, their board or go to their, their boss and say, oh man, UX writing, like, it sounds like re- a really cool discipline. Is there any advice you could give them? Yeah, I would suggest that the easiest way to do that, to get that buy-in, is to show the impact. So if during user testing someone mentions that the wording or the content is really confusing them, then tell everybody about it and do A-B testing to prove that one version of the wording results in a higher uptake than the other. And that kind of helps you to prove the value of having someone focus on the writing. Yeah, okay, that's, that's good feedback. So just moving on like to one of the other points you made was be human. Yes. Can you be not human? I've definitely experienced really robotic yeah. digital experiences, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's non-human centered design. Yeah. It's robot centered design. Exactly. So what do you mean by be human? I mean, uh, use plain language and speak like your users do. Don't have errors that say, exception error 10357, because yeah. that's just painful for everyone. So what do you say to organizations then that they're kind of like, Oh, we're, we're a bank. If we sound too much like we're street, mm. we're, we're going to sound like we're not taking it serious. Yeah, well, obviously context is important and your company branding is important, but I would argue that you can always write in plain language regardless of what your brand is. So some of the terminology I know from looking at uh, Grammarly and some of the other tools that you suggested before we, we were speaking today like active and passive voice. So maybe just give us some examples of what that is and when you should use them. Yeah, I'll try to make this quick because I know it's really painful for a lot of people to talk about grammar. But uh, So using active voice over passive voice is making it clear who the actor is. So an example of the passive would be the problem is being investigated, which tells you what's happening, but it doesn't tell you who's investigating it. Right. And so if you flip that into the active, it's we're investigating the problem. So it's making it clear who the actor is and whether it's you or as a company or whether it's the user. Okay, so it's better to use active yeah. as opposed to passive as your... I mean, passive does have its use sometimes, yeah. but in general, active is better. Okay. Yeah, so to sum up the Be Human guideline, it's just about considering the user's emotional state and their context, which we should always be doing as designers and UX people and it's also about showing your personality yeah the brand personality exactly yeah Yeah. so no matter not the designer's personality yes I know you could get some schizophrenic interfaces (laughs) (laughs) so no matter who you work for and what your company does you've always got a personality and it's okay to show it 
So what would you say to organizations that are currently writing content and they, they would say, well, we don't have a need for UX writing. It's just another UX title. Mm. What would you say to them like, to get on board? Well, I mean, firstly, it, the title doesn't have to be UX writer. There are people doing this work who are called product content strategists, who are called technical writers, who are called copywriters. Uh, so don't get too hung up on the name. But also I would say that it's really important to give just as much consideration to what the product says as to how it looks and how it works. So if you think of those three what it, what it says, what was the first one? What it says. What it says, which is your content design, yeah. how it looks, yeah, your visual is, design and how it works. Absolutely. So, yeah, content is just as necessary for a really great product experience. And when you think about what's coming in the future in terms of conversational interfaces and chatbots, well, that entire interface is content. So it's only going to get more important in the future. Yeah. Apart from yourself, who would you recommend people um, read and uh, learn more about writing in UX writing? Yeah, so number one would be John Sato, who's a UX writer from Dropbox. Okay. He's doing amazing stuff and writing about it on Medium. Okay, John Sato, I'll put that link in the show notes. There's a Slack group called Content and UX, okay. which is a great source of everything that comes at the intersection of content and UX. Nice, yeah. And can anyone join that? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay, it's not just in Australia. It's No, it's no, global. it's global. Yeah. Uh, there's a really great book that was written by one of the MailChimp writers called Nicely Said, Writing for the Web with Style and Purpose. Okay. So it's a really good starting point if you just want to learn more. Yeah. I've got one there that I, I've read recently and it was from Abby Cover. Mm. Um, is how to make sense of any mess. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. Which goes more into the information architecture space. Yes. But it's still really, really interesting and easy read. A really easy read. She did a really great job. She's on Abby, the IA. I think it's Abby underscore the underscore IA. Again, I'll drop a link in the show notes for that book as well. And one more, there's also a Facebook group called Microcopy and UX Writing. Ooh, that one sounds really so, interesting. Yeah, if you don't want to go outside of Facebook for all your <laughs> UX writing needs. You like giving Zuckerberg all your data. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You can definitely stay within the Facebook realm and yeah. get, get lots of information. So which companies do you think are doing it well? I think Slack is a great example of a company who understands the value of a great content experience. Yeah. And you think about the people who use Slack, they usually love it. And I think a big part of that is the fact that their tone of voice is funny and it's informative and like they just tick all the boxes. Yeah. Uh, another one would be, would be MailChimp. MailChimp. Yeah. They always seem to be the, the one that comes back around. Yeah. So we're coming towards the end of this episode, Rachel, and thanks for spending the time with me on a Monday evening after work in Melbourne. But I'm going to ask you the three questions from hell, which we ask everyone who's on the podcast. And the first question is, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? I don't know if it counts as a professional skill, but for me, it's embracing imperfection. Wow. <laughs> embracing imperfection. I think that's, a, you know, that's definitely a skill, a professional skill as well. Yeah. So 
how are you going to get better at that? Oh, it's look, easy to say these things, but exactly, what you yeah. I'm taking baby steps taking towards baby it. Steps. Yeah, All right. but part of that is in a UX writing realm is to remember that what you start with doesn't necessarily have to be what you end up with. So get something out there, test it with users, see how it goes, and then if it's not great, then you can Iterate. improve it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So second question, Rachel: What is the one thing in the industry that you wish you'd be able to banish? Laura Mipsum. Laura Mipsum. Yes. What's wrong with Laura Mipsum? Look, it's served us well, but yeah. I think we've reached the point where it's getting in the way of designing experiences that really put their content front and centre. Okay. I can totally understand. After speaking to you today, um, I don't think I'll ever type L-O-R <laughs> shorthand into my Chrome browser and expect to see Laura Mipsum. I'm going to delete it. So the final question is, what is the message that you give to emerging HCD talent? Yeah. So people trying to break into the industry. It could be people who are interested in writing, with people who are interested in UX design or service design, mm -hmm. business design. So I'd say that it's really good to remember that when users interact with a product or a service, they're usually not there for the design itself, but they're there for the message or the content. So... Make sure you craft your content as carefully as you craft your design. Okay. Sound like a true UX writer. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant meeting you and thank chatting you with you Thank you for having tonight. me. No problem. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.